equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to one of 200 Aotearoa's independent news and politics podcast Yes, it's a new voice uh, I'm Paul, I'm going to be your host for this midweek interview edition of the cast and I'm joined today by a very special guest to do a deep dive on a really timely topic which is the Auckland Council budget. So you may have heard about the budget on the news or through social media and Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown says that it's not looking good. He's proposed sweeping cuts to public services along with the sale of the council's shareholding in Auckland Airport and he says both of these things are necessary to balance the budget and prevent council debt and rates from soaring. But should we believe him? And what's really going on here? So to help us get to the bottom of that, I'm joined by Max Harris of the campaigning group A Better Budget for Auckland. Max is a lawyer and an activist based in Tamaki Makoto. He splits his time between legal research and work as a campaigner for Action Station. He's authored policy reports on housing and also on a Ministry of Green Works and has worked as an economic policy advisor to Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell in the UK. Welcome along, Max. Kia ora, Paul. Nice to be on. So I thought we could start just by uh, going over some context of this budget. So I think it's safe to say that in New Zealand, um, public attention on politics is largely around central government and, and the national level rather than local government. So why is this budget important and what impact is it going to have? Um, and maybe also if you can explain a little bit for our listeners around the process that this budget has gone through um, and also a bit about uh, the key players that are involved. Yeah, so I think you're totally right. There's a lot more media attention on central government than local government. But as we all know, we use a lot of local government services. Um, We use libraries, we use public transport. We might go to the art gallery, the town hall. uh, And uh, we don't tend to talk a lot about the detail of local government decision-making. Uh, maybe in Auckland outside of the super city being set up about, you know, just over a decade ago. Um, I think what's important about this budget is it comes on the back of a pretty heated election campaign. And, and full disclosure, I was involved in the Official Collins campaign, um, which was uh, who was the main opponent of Wayne Brown's. Um, a campaign where Wayne Brown... Um, wanted to, to fix Auckland. That was his slogan. He talked about bringing the, the council-controlled organisations under control um, and shaking up Auckland Council. He didn't talk, though, about that much detail. Um, he didn't talk about selling off the airport, and we can come back to that. And so when Wayne Brown won, I think there was a question mark for a lot of people around what he was actually going to do and whether he was going to be able to build uh, coalitions at the council. And what's happened since... That election win last year, I think, has been pretty interesting. So we've had like murmurings about fiscal pressures on the council for some time. In particular, the New Zealand Herald journalist Bernard Orsman was writing about this last year and suggesting that, you know, there was going to be a, a fiscal hole around the corner. But late last year, um, the sort of media and political pressure, especially out of Wayne Brown's office, built up. And um, we got the first outline of a budget uh, in uh, December last year. The council voted by 20 to 1 to put it out for consultation, Councillor Joe Bartley being the only one not to um, 
vote to put it out to consultation. And why this budget is important is, as was shown back then, there were some pretty big changes to um, the structure of our politics and our daily life that could have flown from that budget um, if it's agreed to. Um, so what was proposed there were a few levers. So cuts, um, that's the first lever, spending. Second, selling the Auckland Airport shares. Auckland Council owns 18% of Auckland International Airport. Third, debt. Wayne Brown proposed limited uh, debt between 75 and 140 million and rates. Um, and Wayne Brown wanted, he said, to keep rates low and basically proposed 7% general, uh, 7% uh, rates increase, 4.66% average rates increase. Since then, there's been quite a rush and quite a lot of frenzy I would say in talking about the pressure the council faces so the budget only went out to consultation on the 28th of March of February and had one month uh, for consultation so consultation closed on the 28th of March uh, we can talk more about the bud- the feedback that came in then there was mixed feedback essentially and since then Wayne Brown has tried to say the fiscal hole is even bigger than what he first said it was. We'll come back to the details on that, but um, after the cyclone Gabriel, after the floods, he said it's even bigger. Um, And we've also had a mobilization of groups against the budget. So that's a bit of an introduction, a bit of kind of stirring pressure against the backdrop of a heated election campaign last year, some political choices about what to push, and then um, a pretty heated year this year. Um, where Wayne Brown's attempted to whip up more of a panic and the public's fought back. Mm. Yeah, no, a lot's happened, eh? Um, I think maybe before we shift on to the... I, I want to get on to the, the fiscal hole that you mentioned and the kind of fiscal picture, I guess, um, of this budget. But maybe before we do, there's a really interesting point that you raised about the process, right? Um, and, you know, people's ability, the public's ability to... Um, to provide feedback on the budget uh and you mentioned um josephine bartley was the only councillor to oppose that um that there were i think some arguments at the time that it was just oh this this decision is just to actually put the budget out for consultation and it's not sort of an indication of supporting what's in the budget but maybe um do you want to speak briefly about some of the flaws in that process, I guess, uh, in terms of in terms of feedback. I mean, you mentioned one, just the, the amount of time, the lack of time that people have to feedback. But why is it not a perfect democratic process, I guess? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so one starting point there is that a lot of people have said the mayor doesn't have a lot of power in Auckland. It's just one vote around the table. I might have even um, said that during the campaign last year. But I think this whole process shows actually in setting the budget, which is one of the mayor's statutory roles in in proposing a budget, the mayor has quite a lot of power to shape the conversation and to shape the starting points of the conversation. So the mayor did that um, in quite a rushed way. So the reports from other councillors that um, the draft budget was essentially pulled together with in about a week and that they had very limited notice um, before they saw it. Um, But you mentioned sort of other problems with the process. Um, So the form online, was was called tilted by lots of people and um, for example there was one question which i'm slightly paraphrasing but essentially said um if you had to keep three things three services what would be the three that you would keep and you can understand that that tilts the answer towards accepting some cuts are necessary choose your flavor of austerity exactly choose your flavor of cuts 
And one last point is that um, I know a number of people that went along to meetings where um, it was also said that the way the options were presented, for example, around the Auckland Council were tilted towards Wayne Brown's options, even though there were lots of um, council staff doing their very best um, to, to present the options in the way they'd been outlined in the consultation documents. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this fiscal hold then. So Wayne Brown has said that this is the, the key challenge that, um, that the council faces and that the budget aims to uh, fix and that, that he aims to fix Auckland. Um, there's there's a fiscal hole of roughly three hundred million dollars um, that he's said in the in the proposal document, um, and that there's a requirement for the council to balance to provide a balanced budget. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, um, and maybe also some of the context, like how does this compare with previous budgets, uh, and yeah, what what actually is the scale of the of the fiscal challenge that the council's facing at the moment? Yeah. So first point is there's been a lot of loose talk about this budget being unprecedented. Uh, That's not accurate in my view. Um, There's a pretty recent precedent for this, um, and that's the emergency budget that the council faced during COVID, where actually the fiscal challenges were much greater than this budget. So there was a a $700 million um, operating gap um, made up of um, some similar components. Then it was said $500 million um, uh, of the gap came from uh, day-to-day spending and there was a 200 million further gap from drought so another kind of natural disaster that added on to the initial challenge and so one economist who I spoke to um, who's close to these things said the first thing he thought when he saw this fiscal hole was actually it's not that much money in the bigger scheme of what Auckland Council's dealt with before but as it was presented the fiscal hole was supposedly 295 million dollars the two things that Wayne Brown talked about a lot um, in, and uh, that came out a lot in the budget consultation document were inflation and interest rates. The argument was higher inflation, higher interest rates put pressure on our services and they've created all sorts of um, fiscal pressures. A point to make here before we go on is um, those are not pressures unique to Auckland. Uh, Those are pressures that other councils around the country face as well. And we know not every council in the country has responded in the same way as Auckland, which gives you an initial hint that there are some political decisions being made here. Wellington has responded with increased rates um, and without proposing to sell off the airport. Another point to make here is there's actually not very much detail in the budget consultation document about how this $295 million fiscal hole is made up. And you have to go to the supporting documents to see some, in one page, some pretty limited information. And an economist also told me that um, it was really lacking in um, any writing about like the assumptions that this was based on. Um, And yeah, some of these numbers in my view are pretty shaky. For example, um, we we have just a a table that says higher interest costs $50 million with no breakdown of of where that comes from. and in my view, the media, um, which t- at times has done a, a good job in certain stories and in certain ways, could have done more to push back And when we, we were first told of this fiscal hole um, and, and asked questions about how this was made up, as well as councillors. Um, but just to make uh, one final point when we're talking about the fiscal hole, um, earlier this month, Wayne Brown came out um, with quite a lot of media saying that the fiscal hole had blown out further. And he um, actually briefed to media that it was as high as $375 million. Um, Again, this was a lot of spin. Um, uh, It seems 
now a lot of people are, are, are pulling that back and saying, actually, it's, it's 325 million and there's 50 million from the storm, which the council chief financial officer, Peter Gudsell, who's a key actor in all of this, um, said uh, does not go to the budget. So there's 50 million more costs that council has to face, but it's not in this budget. So there is a little more cost, uh, allegedly, 325 million. But Brown actually hasn't come out with any updates to those original calculations or much detail. Um, and so that's where we sit now with um, 325 million. Your, your, your final question, the final point to, to make here is, um, you know, is it a legal requirement that the council balances its budget? And uh, what I say here is this is something you hear quite a bit from uh, councillors and people around local government. It's not quite correct. So there is a provision in the Local Government Act called balanced budget requirement sounds like local governments have to balance their budgets and this, sorry just to be clear this is the local government act uh passed by central government right so so the the i guess the requirements that um central government has for local governments to act in a particular way yeah. that's right that's right sorry so this is the law that says how local governments have to act yeah we're gonna have a separate discussion about um you know, whether there should be any requirement um, on local governments to balance their budget, whether that's part of a kind of neoliberal focus. But putting that point aside, the key point here is under that law, there are exceptions for um, a council um, passing a balanced budget. In particular, section 100, subsection 2 says that a local authority may not pass a balanced budget if the local authority resolves that it's financially prudent to do so having regard to a few different things, including the expenses of maintaining services, um, including uh, funding uh, and available revenue, including equitable allocation of responsibility for funding, and including funding and financial policies. So pretty broad then. It's pretty broad. And it essentially says if a council decides it's financially prudent in, in one year to um, spend more than the income that comes in, in exceptional circumstances, it can. And some would say this year, where we faced COVID, a cost of living crisis, and the sharp effects of climate change is an exceptional year. Mm-hmm. I want to move on to the uh, the cuts um, sides of, side of things. Um, but just before I do, really uh, interesting there that um, there's often an argument from, from right-wingers and local government, right, that they um, are oppressed by central government and that they're put under all these restrictions and that you know they need more voice but it's funny the the parts of the legislation that they ignore uh, when it politically it suits them right like the the balanced budget requirement they're not complaining about central government um you know coming to them with all these requirements for that but anyway um in terms of cuts so maybe let's just start by talking about some of the things which are on the chopping block um you know we've heard probably mostly about you know community services funding for local boards uh, and public transport impacts. So maybe if you can talk about a, a few of those things, uh, and and I guess you know it's it's important that people understand like how this is going to affect their daily lives, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what what in your view is are the, are the most important things here? Um, yeah, and and the reasons why you know that this is probably the thing that people are most upset about. I think about the budget proposal. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So the cuts are as they were originally proposed, pretty wide ranging. Um, in fact, you know, famously earlier in the year when Wayne Brown was challenged at an arts event about why he was um, doing so much damage to the art sector, he essentially said, I'm not just cutting the art sector, I'm cutting everything. Um, so public transport services, 
brought to a standstill, um, supposedly to save $21 million. Tartaki Auckland Unlimited facing $27.5 million in cuts. Um, what Tartaki Auckland Unlimited does is essentially fund economic development and tourism. It's quite important because that brings money in for the council. You might think that that's actually what we should be boosting if we want revenue streams to come in for the council. That has implications for things like the art gallery, for the zoo, for um, uh, other kind of tourist events. Um, regional services, as you mentioned, cut by 20 million. Local board services cut by um, 16 million. There's a particularly brazen example um, here where um, there are proposed local board um, funding changes in the draft document bringing all local board environmental services funding down to zero dollars. Very much looks like a direction for local board to get out of any environmental work at a time when I think you know we should all be um, hands on deck when it comes to tackling climate change um, and withdrawing direct early childhood education services um, to save just one million dollars actually a small amount of money but quite an important cut because it shows the politics of this budget um, uh, I could spend lots of minutes talking about this but we currently have a, a market dominated childcare sector which puts people that need childcare at the whims of the market. It's actually really important, in my view, that we support the um, non-market childcare sector, which includes council-provided childcare services, and that was also being uh, cut. Of these cuts, um, you know, several points have been drawn out by campaigners, including cuts to the Citizens Advice Bureau. So just at a time when people are facing economic precarity, the place that people can go to for free legal advice, for free advice for dealing with access to services is being cut um and yeah maybe two final points to make on this uh, number one there's been a really strong um, community fight back on this including by groups like um, communities against cuts uh, and number two the mayor recently gave an update where reportedly without um briefing councillors in advance um, which is perhaps another sign of um questionable operations in there um the mayor said that he would confirm that certain organisations would receive funding, including the Citizens Advice Bureau and the Southern Initiative, which was another um, employment-centred um, organisation that was facing cuts. A point to make about this is that um, all the mayor said was that would receive some funding. So, for, you know, some of those regional organisations that could be anywhere between one dollar to you know the full. Uh, 20 million um, restored. So I think we need to be very careful. I think we should acknowledge the, the hard work that's been done, but be very careful in celebrating too quickly. And I think we need to keep holding the council to account to ensure a fair budget um, mm. gets arrived at. For sure, yeah. Um, so I wanted to move on to, to asset sales, um, which you mentioned earlier. Um, Wayne Brown's proposed as, as part of the budget that... Uh, Auckland Council's 18% shareholding of Auckland Airport um, would be sold. Obviously, it's a very strategic asset um, for the public. Um, you mentioned climate change just before, given you know the context of an escalating climate crisis that we're facing. Um, but also, you know, it's a it's a strategic asset for the economy, right, and, and the city's economy. So, um, I guess f- firstly around public assets and public ownership, like why is it important that the council owns these things. Um, and then maybe also if you can talk about, you know, I've seen a few arguments around the size of the shareholding. You know, why is that important? Some people saying that um, 18% is is quite small and um, it, it doesn't offer 
the council much decision making power um, over over the assets. So yeah, maybe some of the arguments sort of for like why we should have assets like this in public ownership. Um, what would you say to that? Yeah, for sure. So just starting with why we want some things in public ownership. I think quite a helpful example to think about is your community library. I was at Avondale Library today, or Tahu Library is just down the road. I think public ownership stems from the position that there are some things that are too important to be left to the market. Um, that uh, there are some things that we don't want to be delivered in a for-profit way. That might be because it's important that they're delivered in a low-cost or free way, in an accessible way, like libraries. It might also be because we think if we hand these services over to for-profit providers, um, we're going to have outcomes that are going to be really damaging for our community. We're going to have costs going up, like you're going to need to pay more to go to your library. Um, you're going to have access limited. You're potentially going to have workers' conditions driven down as for-profit companies try to reduce costs and cut corners. That's in general why we want to take some things out of the market. And there's also some good economic arguments about why some things need to be in public ownership. It's cheaper for the government to borrow. Government can have economies of scale, which just means we um, buy things cheaper when we buy them in bulk. We can coordinate services. Those are reasons to own some things in whole, but they can also be reasons to have a stake in something. And they're reasons that apply to um, Auckland Airport, where the Auckland Council has an 18% stake. So um, actually most of the very best airports in the world, as um, several people have said in the commentary on this issue, are owned publicly by local or central governments. Um, and that's because um, airports are judged to be strategically important. And we, we kind of saw this in the COVID crisis. Airports were where people came in and off planes during a health emergency where tests had to be done, where services had to be coordinated with MIQ facilities in this country. And that meant um, it, it, there were good arguments um, to, to have these assets in public ownership. Specifically with Auckland Airport, and I'll come on to your voice point, um, there are a few things that are important. Um, one is it's, it's actually growing as an asset. And Terry Boucher, uh, a tax expert, has done good work on this in a piece in, in the Herald if people are interested in reading more, where he said, actually, it's expanded over time in the last 10 years. It's become a more important asset. The other good thing about that is it's an asset that the council can borrow against, which is good for future borrowing. Um, but it's also um, done well in terms of the dividends that it gives back. And this is another reason you might keep some things in public ownership, because it might sometimes bring in a, a revenue stream for government. So money that government can then reinvest in the service. And the dividends um, uh, were paused during COVID um, when, as we know, people weren't flying. But they are coming back on stream. And it's a very short-term uh uh, decision to, 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 to sell the airport off um, as those dividends are going to increase over time. And, that, we, and that's it, sorry to interrupt, yeah. that's been an argument, hasn't it, that, I mean, that's one that I've seen come out as um, some people saying, well, you know, this uh, investment isn't actually returning any dividends, but <laughs> of course, no one's been flying, like you say, for a couple of years, so it's probably not the best um, couple of years to look at. Exactly, yeah. and um, actually the figures... The council's own figures show the dividend going up over time from, I think, 42 million in um, financial year 2024 to about 75 million in financial year 2028. Interestingly, that at that point, as Greg Presland has pointed out, um, the dividend projections flatten and the council's um, 
made some very conservative assumptions there about um, dividends increasing only with inflation at that point. And I can maybe come back to that if we talk about dividends versus interest payments, because that's what's lying behind that. But just to come back to your other point about voice and control, it's true that um, what lots of people have said is, oh, we only own 18%. That's not very much, is it? Um, Surely it wouldn't make a huge difference to sell it off, especially when we're in a time of fiscal pressure. Now, the answer to that is actually it's still quite a significant stake. It's true that Auckland Council doesn't have a director on the board. Um, They could push for that, um, and some councillors are interested in that, I know. Um, But there are lots of other ways that um, shareholders can have influence. I mean, we've seen internationally a rise in shareholder activism in the environmental space, Um, and that's because people recognise that through things like shareholder meetings, passing shareholder resolutions, votes on key company decisions like changing the company constitution, these are all things that shareholders do, not um, directors. Um, and actually, if you have 18%, it's quite a significant stake. In Auckland Airport's case, it's the second biggest shareholder. That means other shareholders look at you and they think, uh, the council's a powerful operator. We need to get the, pa- the council on side if we want to do anything. But also the council might be able to be a break on some things. And um, some other people on this, um, especially on the left, might say, oh, like, well, why would we want... Um, government uh, owning an airport at a time that we want to phase out flying well actually it's a very good thing to have uh, an actor in there that's not focused just on profit but it can think about the broader public interest um, and if we if we have a, a entity that's entirely focused on profit we might get more flying um, and more climate outcomes that aren't positive for the public so those are a couple of the arguments that have come mm. up but there have been others as well yeah exactly i would have thought that, that would actually be an argument for more um yeah, for, for more public ownership of those assets that we know are going to be, uh, like when I mentioned the climate crisis before, that's what I was referring to. You know, these these things are central, right, to our um, our ability to reduce emissions and to actually know what, what the plan is, you know. And like okay. you say, if we leave it up to uh, private interests and that are seeking profit, they're going to do, they're not that concerned with, um, uh you know, aircraft emissions and you know, like like you say are probably going to increase them maybe if i could just jump in there just yeah. on the environmental point um i mean some listeners will have seen the rise of green new deal advocacy around the world and a key part of the green new deal as it's been proposed is public ownership of key assets so that we can have a coordinated response on climate change exactly and the argument there is that um private for-profit actors aren't just driving in the wrong direction in profit they're also fragmented they're not coordinated or they're not coordinated in the right way and um so yeah that that push is directly in the opposite direction to this push to to privatize another asset so we have less coordination um for climate change yeah for sure there's another argument around um the the airport sale which i think has been really interesting and this is something that more left-leaning people have been have been pushing um and that is that you know we really need to protect um against the cuts to services um and that's that's the thing that's of biggest concern and then therefore to um you know in in order to save uh, those services from being cut we need to sell the airport because the money needs to come from somewhere uh what what's your what's your counter to that argument i guess like why is that do you think that's correct or or do you think it's a bit wrong-headed? Yeah, I think it's a bit wrong-headed. Wayne Brown's been pushing this argument that, um, you know, he's come out with this long list of threatening-looking cuts and then he's also presented the airport sale and he's essentially said, if you don't want these cuts, then you should let me sell the airport. 
and, and I can pay down debt. We can come back to debt and interest in a moment. But one reason why it's wrong-headed is that it's a false choice. Those are not the only options. In particular, there can be increased borrowing and increased rates, and those are two different levers from cuts in the airport. And we need to broaden that discussion so that we don't feel locked into this false choice of, of pitting two um, really um, horrific outcomes kind of against each other. Um, uh, yeah, a, a second point is that actually um, selling off the airport doesn't make the council that much money, um, even year on year. So um, it's sometimes said, oh, well, it can be used to pay down debt. Auckland doesn't have a debt crisis. As Bernard Hickey has said, we're quite far below our debt ceiling. And so to get around that, Wayne Brown and his team have said, well, year on year, you can benefit because you can pay less interest on borrowing. And they've said um, in updated numbers that you'd, you'd save about $99 million on interest, take away $42 million from the airport dividend, you make $57 million year on year. Now that narrows over time, as I've said, as the dividend goes up and it, and it actually... Um, the dividend starts to get bigger just when the council uh, appears to adopt kind of more conservative assumptions um, for future. So what about the idea of just selling part of the 18% shareholding? I've seen this um, mooted by a few people as well. You know, could we just sell part of it and still keep some of the influence maybe? Or yeah, what would you say to that that point? Yeah, so it seems uh, that Wayne Brown, um, at the time that we're speaking, doesn't have the numbers for a full sale. Uh, and it's been suggested that uh, he's turned his attention to a partial sale, like sale of, say, 8%. Uh, one point is you make even less money. I've already said that year to year, you're, you're not actually making a huge amount of money on the sale. So it makes even less financial sense when you think about the fact that this is a, a asset performing well that you can borrow against, that's growing, uh, it's a big land holding um, that's providing other benefits. But the second more important point perhaps is it's just another step down the road to privatization. And um, once you sell off a partial stake, it will be easier next time for the same arguments that are coming out now to be raised with greater force. Um, they'll say, ah, we, we have even less control and even less voice now. They'll say, isn't it ridiculous that we only have 10% now? Um, so it's a vote for privatization and we shouldn't stand for it. Yeah, it's a great point about the the steps along the way. And, you know, I think we can see that as, as a bit of a common theme um, with this with this whole debate around the budget. Um, so I wanted to move on to, to debt as one of these other levers. And you spoke um, just very briefly before about the debt ceiling. Um, so maybe can you talk a little bit about that? Like what, what is this debt ceiling that... Uh, is, is facing council um, and and then maybe another point uh, to discuss is the cost of servicing the debt um, you know a lot of commentators and, and Wayne Brown himself and others are saying that um, interest rates are going up you know and so the council is facing high servicing costs and we need to that's one reason that they provide for uh, limiting debt um, yeah so can you talk about that how can we use debt uh, and and what's up with this uh, ceiling so maybe for for people who aren't so comfortable with economic arguments one point to make at the start is um when governments borrow money it's not the same as when as private individuals we borrow money um so you don't tend to borrow from just one person um you tend to borrow from uh multiple people you don't have to pay the money back in the same way if you're a government um 
uh, it's it's just not the same, and uh, often um, m- money is owed to other parts of government, um, especially at the, at the central government level. Uh, and so, I think it's important to put it into context. Um, and I think we need to get better at um, at how we talk about borrowing, because it's a, it's it's one way we can fund important investments for developing a more livable city and country. Um, but to get to your specific question, so Auckland Council. Um, measures its debt in different ways. Um, One way is um, comparing its debt to the assets it owns, the debt to asset ratio. Interestingly, it's not really talking about that very much at the moment because that um, potentially could be harmed by selling off the airport. It's talking a lot about another measure, which is debt to revenue. So um, yeah, debt to to the money coming in. Um, It lifted its if the ceiling uh, during COVID to 290%. Now that sounds like a big number, but as Bernard Hickey's pointed out, that's it's actually not very much, including compared to what we, um, he, he then used a, a kind of individual analogy. Um, that's come down, um, but the key point here, as Bernard Hickey has pointed out, is um, Auckland Council is, is nowhere near its debt ceiling. Um, so debt has been tracking down since COVID. Uh, it's not in a position of, of breaching that debt ceiling. And another important point is um, this is essentially a self-imposed cap. So it's a feature of our politics in the last 30 to 40 years that um, we've decided to impose these debt caps which limit how much we can spend as, as governments. Um, and Shamabil Jakob, the economist, has called um, the local government debt cap idiotic. Um, so this is partly done to please credit rating agencies, which are international non-democratic bodies that um, judge uh, the, the finances of a government. Um, and uh, essentially, um, it's about presenting good plans um, and, and appeasing um, those credit rating agencies. But to come to the, the last part of your question, um, which was about um, interest. So this is another counter argument. Well, you know, if we borrow, don't we have to payback interest um, and isn't that more costs that we're adding to the council which is making the fiscal whole worse now there are a couple of answers to this um, one is that actually interest rates um, having gone up for a while um, over the medium term are, are tracking downwards so um, this is less of a worry um, even if they're higher than they they once were um, and another argument is that um, uh, these interest uh, payments um, don't have to be paid back in the same way as as individual uh, borrowers uh, and there is revenue that can be made available as there has been in the past um, to, to plug that gap um, and I can come on later to, to that revenue but it's not it's basically not a fatal argument against borrowing what about um, I know we're talking a lot about these these arguments that are presented um, and maybe we'll come come later to I guess what what a vision for a more progressive budget would look like but yeah. let's try and tackle these first so there's there's an argument that goes that you should only borrow uh, for capital expenditure and not operational expenditure. Maybe it's a little bit of a wonky, economistic kind of argument, but maybe let's let's try and unpack that a little bit. What, what's your thoughts on that one? Yeah, so there's this rule of thumb that um, you should only borrow for, for capital expenditures, essentially infrastructure to, to simplify slightly, and that day-to-day spending or operating uh, expenditure shouldn't be funded through borrowing. We should spread out borrowing across... Um, uh, multiple generations that's that's better done for um, for capital expenditure um, it's always been a rule of thumb so it's never been a kind of fixed rule and governments have um, departed from it at times including during COVID so that's the first point the second point is there is actually a way that the council can continue to borrow while respecting that rule of thumb I'll try not to get too technical here but um, 
I'll try and explain it as simply as possible, which is that there are some capital projects at the moment, so that might be things like car parks or um, items of infrastructure, that are funded through cash. They're not funded through borrowing. And it might be that some of those projects, in fact, we know some of those projects can be funded from debt, not from cash, and we can repurpose the cash to plug the, the operating shortfall. And I know because I've, I've spoken to people in council that up to 140 million at least can be funded this way. And so what that would mean is we attach the debt to capital projects, we take that cash and we put it in the shortfall and we keep, we keep honoring that rule of thumb that you only use borrowing for capital projects and uh, not for uh, OPEX. Mm. Uh, so, there's, so there's, I guess, um, an interpretation for these kind of rules of thumb and and like some flexibility in how they're applied right is that the point that you're that you're making yeah and that there's a way that we can um quite uh straightforwardly shift how we're funding current capital projects while respecting this rule i mean the other thing to say is yeah this distinction between capital and um operating expenditure has always been slippery Mm. um things like depreciation have been hard to classify in the past there are things like um childcare uh, central government level that have moved from one category to the other or care um, is that from cap capex to opex exactly or, or or the other way around as right. there's been more pressure to see kind of care as a form of of infrastructure exactly, yeah. um and so this is just to say you know sometimes when we talk about um these these economistic concepts it can it can sound scientific and like we're talking about hard rules but actually there's a lot of value judgments involved in this there's a lot of politics and it's really important we see through that and just to come back to your point about we're dealing with a lot of arguments i guess hopefully this is useful because um, we should all be having conversations about the budget and these arguments will come up and winning the arguments is not enough to win the budget we need to build a movement um, alongside those arguments but fine-tuning our arguments helps and it gives us confidence in those conversations totally yeah and i think that point that we were just talking about um you know takes one of those really specific points right and and translates it um i think you did quite effectively into a broader like political um political idea you know how we define capex and opex and what that means uh and you know should we actually be thinking about some of these things differently like childcare as infrastructure and something that's supporting uh you know an investment in our future right which is what which is what capex should be right so i think yeah it's it's really important like you say that um you know these things aren't the domain of economists and they're not yeah there's always a political lens you know which yeah i think you made that point really well um let's let's shift on to rates um so this is the last uh lever um so this is part of wayne brown's mission i guess is to keep rates low right like that's what's driving his motivations for selling assets for uh cutting expenditure um but can you talk a little bit about how much um you know the the amount that rates are being kept to uh, what does what does it mean? How does it stack up against um, perhaps you know other councils or um, historically for Auckland Council? And then also, what's what's a sort of fair amount of rates to pay? Like, how should we be thinking about you know maybe thirteen percent or double digits? Might sound like a lot, but is it is it really? What's your take on that? Yeah, yeah. So a little bit of history here is that um, since the super city, Auckland's rates increases have been quite low compared to other councils in New Zealand 
so generally between about 0.5% and 2.5%. Um, that's, that's not a lot um, to fund uh, investment in a growing city. Uh, the other point is that rates have, however, always been slightly above inflation, acknowledging that when inflation occurs, the services do get a bit more expensive and it makes sense to increase rates to cover costs, for example, of um, higher wages for people delivering services. Now this year, the proposal from Wayne Brown is holding rates below uh, inflation um, that was kind of trumpeted in the budget consultation document. So one argument for lifting rates above what Wayne Brown's proposed is it makes sense to keep pace with inflation, to make sure we're paying good wages, to make sure we're continuing to deliver the services. And we know that um, uh, inflation is unlikely to be a permanent uh, phenomenon here and inflation is going to go down again. But for, for this year, it makes sense for rates to, to keep up. Beyond this year, though, um, you know, we should also have a conversation about rates and what we are willing to pay for a thriving city. Um, so Wellington um, has just, I think, passed a 12% rates increase. Uh, and those figures sound big, but we're, we're talking, uh, we're not talking the same scale as when we're talking about income tax. We're talking about um, dollars, ten, tens of dollars um, across across uh, months in the year. And uh, we're also talking about uh, a form of tax on property values, um, which we know have, have, have increased um, significantly in New Zealand in, in recent years. Um, so the feedback on the budget was that there was willingness from the public um, to use uh, debt or rates um, to, to make up the shortfall. And um, I think we can come on to alternatives, but I think um, there is r- real space to increase those rates. And the, and the rough um, formula that the budget consultation documents uses is increase rates by 1% and you get $20 million in revenue. Um, so that's that's quite significant in terms of what can be funded to, to make up this uh, shortfall. Um, one final point is... Um, the proposal talked about freezing some rates, um, in particular the natural environment and water quality targeted rate. And a better budget for Auckland proposed unfreezing these rates. Interestingly, when we did that, we got emails from council, a council finance officer saying, uh, you know, that money can't go to the operating shortfall. Um, even if that was right technically, um, we don't think it's. We didn't think at the time that it was a good time to freeze uh, money for natural environment and water quality. And actually, this was something that was going to provide a big benefit for business. And this is a way of, of Wayne Brown trying to to keep rates low. So that's another dimension of the the rates discussion, even if um, it's slightly outside possibly the shortfall. So we've talked a lot about as as i mentioned before we talked a lot about these levers and the in the the specific arguments for or against selling the airport or uh, increasing debt and so on but maybe to kind of summarize all of this are you able to just present us with a picture of like what an alternative budget from a progressive perspective looks like like if you combine these things um what should progressives be advocating for uh as as a kind of whole package yeah, so I think, first of all, at a high level, we should be pushing for no cuts, no sale of the airport, and using other levers to address the shortfall, and also investing in the city for the future, because that's how we're going to get income coming in in future years. Um, but there is a way of uh, making those numbers stack up. Uh, and w- w- just uh, a couple of back-of-the-envelope sets of numbers that I've done, um, 
offer basically two options. One's a, a slightly higher rates proposal with about a medium level of debt, and the other is uh, lower rates with higher debt. So if we increased rates by 13%, um, that would raise $190 million. 3.5% of rates increases is already counted. Um, and then you could inc- uh, you could make up uh, the shortfall uh, by borrowing another 135 million. So 190 million from rates and 135 million from borrowing. That's actually within the borrowing range that Wayne Brown originally proposed in the budget, which was 75 million to 140 million. Um, one point that we didn't get to earlier is um, Wayne Brown, uh, or at least in that proposal, suggested that um, there'd be a breach of internal policy if we went above 140 million borrowing. That's not because the debt ceiling would have been breached. Um, that's a breach of uh, projections in the long-term plan. Side point. So anyway, that's you know slightly higher rates, um, medium-level borrowing, or you can make the numbers add up even with a lower rates offer that is kind of consistent with what Wayne Brown's been pushing if we went for more borrowing. So increase rates by 9.9%. That keeps uh, us below a double date, double digits rates increase, which is something Wayne Brown's been talking about. That would raise $128 million. And you make up the rest through borrowing, which would be $197 million. That adds up. 197 plus 128 to 325 million. Um, I know that there are some councillors who are concerned about borrowing, um, but we've already talked that through about um, why they should be willing in this year um, to plug that gap. Um, and they can do that in a way that respects rules of thumb. The final point I just add to this is those numbers balance the books. We already said that's actually not a legal requirement. If the government, if, if the local government uh, council decided, actually we can't fill the fiscal hole in a way that's fair this year, they could decide that. But that point aside, even if we balance the books, um, I think progressives should also be pushing for investment, uh, and that might that might mean we need to borrow a little bit more, or it might mean we need to tax a little bit more. We might need to look at new tax options. We might need to look at parking charges. But I think we should also be pushing for. Um, investing in bigger events in future and thinking about we can, how Auckland can be a centre for culture and also boosting economic development in Auckland, which is a way um, to ensure we've got revenue streams coming in in future. Yeah, it's an important point, isn't it? Um, I guess with with such a disastrous proposal like this, right, it's really easy to look at um, those, you know, really urgent uh, fights and and maybe lose sight a little bit of the broader struggle that we're facing here um, and you know the broader kind of solutions that progressives should be arguing for um, and I guess that that brings me on to another question so I wanted to talk about how this struggle um, against the budget relates to broader political struggles you know maybe um, central government and like the, the history of um, neoliberalism and maybe austerity in general, obviously. Um, I, I don't know what you think about this, but perhaps uh, austerity hasn't been as big a um, battle in New Zealand as perhaps um, places like the United Kingdom where you've done some work. So yeah, maybe talk about that a little bit. How, how, like, how should we situate this in political struggles and... Yeah, what does it kind of what does it mean for the overall fight against austerity and neoliberalism? So we focused a lot on the arguments, but I think we can be really positive here and say, if we can build um, a strong coalition against asset sales generally, not just saying no to the airport sale, but to asset sales generally, 
that puts a clear line in the sand when this council tries to sell other things in future years, perhaps the port, perhaps council housing, and when future governments try to sell key assets. So I guess the point there is, if we can join the dots on this struggle, if we can show um, how the things we're fighting for are connected to deeper commitments we have as progressives, that can make us stronger when it comes to the next fight. Um, just as with asset sales, so too with fighting against austerity. So austerity is about cuts, in particular cuts to social services that working and, and marginalized people rely on uh, and and that we all rely on as the, as the general public, but in particular those cuts to, to those social services and, and, and those services that we need as, as human beings as communi- and as communities. As you said, in the UK, um, in particular from 2010, there was a vicious program of cuts um, people call it the lost decade now in the UK uh, that that shrank the social state and had disastrous human outcomes. So it, it's been linked to, to more than 100,000 human deaths. Uh, it's true that we don't talk in those terms so much in New Zealand, but we know um, from discussions about um, the next election that um, we might be looking at cuts we might uh, you know just yesterday the act party said yes we will be part of a coalition of cuts so we need to mobilize our movements and get our arguments as strong as they can be um, to ward off that threat which can arise again at a at a central government level that's on us as activists it's on us as as kind of commentators and thinkers trying to connect us up um and it's on us, yeah, when it comes to putting forward a positive program as well. We should be also thinking at a positive level about how investment grows the economy, how um, if we invest in services, um, that brings money back into our communities. That's how we grow our communities. If we um, build public ownership, that can make us stronger and better for dealing with things like climate change. As well as being on us as activists and commentators, I think it's on the media. And I just wanted to say one thing, I guess, about the media reporting um, of the Auckland Council uh, and its budget negotiations. Um, uh, there are some key figures in the kind of local government um, media scene. And I think in general, um, the media has been too willing to accept that this is an unprecedented budget, um, that, that these cuts are eye-watering. Uh, and I, I don't think all of the media is the same. And I think over time, there's been more critical attention paid. Um, but I think... Uh, in future, uh, it's really important uh, that journalists uh, cut through some of the spin that we've seen from Wayne Brown. It's not the first time we've, we've seen that spin. It w- won't be the last. Um, and I, I do want to emphasize positives here. I think people like Matthew Scott from Newsroom or Ira Lee from TVNZ, uh, Sam Brooks from Spinoff, um, Bernard Hickey, the Kaka. Um, all of those people have, have um, focused in on um, key elements of this debate, the impact of the cuts, um, the shaky numbers, the fact there isn't a debt crisis. And I do think we need to support those journalists um, as activists um, and work with journalists to try to um, see through these dodgy numbers. Because as India Logan Riley said from A Better Budget uh, for Auckland, uh, what we know is that austerity is about whipping up a sense of panic to get public support for things that are usually unpopular, like cuts and privatization. In normal times, in general, there is not majority support for selling off assets, including conservatives. We've seen that conservatives um, on Auckland Council are not backing asset sales because they believe in holding on to the family silver or they have some sense of civic pride. 
So these things are not popular. And the way that the right has to make them popular is to create a sense of panic, uh, a sense of uh, there being a shock. And we need to think really hard about seeing through that panic, um, putting it to one side and putting forward alternatives um, and continuing to fight um, against that um, whipped up uh, manufactured crisis. Yeah, such a good point. I actually um, did want to bring up the the support, um, or sorry, the, the opposition to asset sales from some places that we might not expect, you know, like those right-wing councillors and, and that, you know, uh, it's it's not, they're not all like ideological libertarians, right? Um, and and there is a an aspect of popular uh, consciousness around these issues and that, and that um, you know, that changes the opinions of these councils and, and the actions of them and influences them. Uh, and yeah, I mean, j- just one final point on this before we move on um, and, and close off. So you mentioned um, your time in the UK and, and the sort of larger battle there. And I guess we've seen um, the results of that, uh, you know, with Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and I guess, you know, it's a few years now since he's led the Labour Party over there, but for me, what uh, he the, his biggest achievement um, was really shifting the conversation on austerity, right? And and you know, at, at least in terms of electoral politics, obviously there's a, there was a lot of grassroots um, activity there um, outside of electoral politics, but um, he really represented that movement. Uh, and you know, like you say, um, there's you know there's a lot of um, popular th- you know, thinking around asset sales here and you know obviously there was the referendum um, back in whenever it was um, the early 2010s uh, around asset sales even though you know that has actually um, stood the test of time with those those asset sales that uh, the key government brought in um, or the partial privatization of the energy companies but do you think that the, the the landscape here really shows that there can be gains in that area. You know, if, if we do, as you say, um, concentrate on building um, a broader, you know, argument for, for keeping these assets here, like can we actually bring assets back into public ownership um, and, you know, build a more of a, of a public social kind of way of doing politics at the local government and central government levels? Totally. And um, I think one challenge for all of us is that for a lot of like younger people listening, and I think for both of us, we've essentially lived our whole lives in the shadow of Rogernomics in the 80s, where um, our our political and economic system has been set up uh, to tilt us towards cuts and privatizations and uh, the decimation of trade unions and the slashing of benefits. And it's very hard when that shadow hangs over us to think about a different kind of world. And it's very hard when some of the same people that were involved back then are pushing to keep it, including Morris Williamson, who's now back on Auckland Council and was involved um, in the 80s and 90s. Um, But I've gotten a lot of hope from this campaign. So I'll admit that when um, I got involved with a better budget for Auckland with others, I initially thought what what we could do was 
offer a big show of opposition to this. And I thought, we've only got a month. At least we can show. I, I was going into surgery at the time. And I thought, like, at least what we could do is, is show there's opposition, show that we're not going to let this happen without a fight. But the public mood's shifted. And that's because groups have gotten together. Unions have gotten mobilized, like Air 2, environmental groups like Generation Zero, 350. Um, there have been conscientious journalists and media people, including people from one of 200. And I think... Um, People are fed up with that system that has surrounded us for, for, for a lot of our lives and we want something different. And this is the positive chance um, in this campaign in this moment is to start to grow the, the seeds of that alternative and to start to become more comfortable with arguments about not just being anti-privatization, but as you say, being pro-public ownership. And I would like to see um, how we build on that also in a way that suits New Zealand's conditions in our own history. Um, but I think that... Um, that would be the ideal outcome that comes from this is also that we're more confident um, in going into the next election and fighting not just against cuts but for investment and for public ownership and for a different kind of political economy. It's very tempting to leave it there because um, it's an awesome positive message but still keeping it positive. Um, final question, what can people do at a more kind of specific level between now and sort of when this decision is being made to, to help influence this? Yeah, it's a great question. So... There's a big decision being made on um, the 8th of June. Around the time this podcast will come out, um, Wayne Brown is going to release, I think, an adjusted budget. Um, so I believe on the 31st of May. Uh, and he's going to suggest that he's responded to feedback and maybe suggest, uh, I actually don't want to predict in, in case this is uh, proved wrong, but he, he will suggest he's done some softening. And basically, I think we need to fight really hard on our bottom lines of no cuts, no sale. Um, being willing to have a conversation about debt and rates. What you can do is post about it on social media, um, check out groups that are posting about this and share what they're saying. So I obviously would talk about a better budget for Auckland, but communities against cuts, uh, Te Taumata Toya Iwi, Forest and Bird are some of the, the groups that have been really active, 350. Um, you can also email councillors and tweet at councillors if you're on Twitter. Um, and I think at this stage... Um, that matters. And councillors aren't um, completely fixed to parties in Auckland um, in the same way as they are in central government. They are responsive to public feedback. Um, if you get a chance to to meet your councillor, um, articulate your views, those things matter. Those things stay with politicians. I've seen that in, in, in roles in and around politicians. Um, so what I would say is, yeah, share on social media, check out the accounts of campaigns fighting against this, email councillors. I believe there's going to be an action on the 8th of June um, when this final decision is made. If, if, you, if you have the time and you're able, um, attend that, look out for details of that um, and keep fighting. Max, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you for all you've done as well. And you mentioned before uh, your surgery, I know you've had a tough time of it, but um, you're a trooper. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for taking the time for this conversation. Thanks, people, for listening. So there it is, our interview uh, with Max Harris. It was an awesome interview. Uh, you can follow Max on Twitter, uh, which is at MaxDNHarris. You can also follow Better Budget for Auckland at BetterBudgetAKL, uh, or check out the website, betterbudgetauckland.co.nz. From us at 1 of 200, uh, that's all for today. Uh, keep listening, uh, drop us a few dollars if you can uh, in our Patreon, uh, follow us, and of course, if you liked this interview, Please share it on social media, tell your friends. 
uh, and we'll be back on the weekend with a current events show. See you next time. Amongst the people every day